All right, good evening, folks. Welcome to Hillcrest and the seventh installment of our 30, I believe, sixth installment series through the New City Catechism. Tonight we'll explore question 11, which is related to commands number 6, 7, and 8 of the Ten Commandments. And so if you would, join me in Exodus chapter 20, and then hold your finger there, and we'll do as we did recently, uh, and then find Matthew chapter 5. Exodus 20, Matthew chapter 5, and when you have your place, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of the word. Again, we come to the, <clears throat> the fourth of five catechism questions uh, related to the law. And so first was an introduction and then was a series of commands, a few at a time, leading up to these commands six through eight. And so we'll read first from Exodus 20, thir verse 13 through 15. You shall not murder... You shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal. And then turning to Matthew 5, let's begin reading in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot... Uh, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 21, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Skip down to verse 27, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Let's pause there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we explore uh, these few of your eternal commands, uh, the law that you gave to Israel the law that you reveal to the world uh, to live uh, wisely in your world. Uh, may we see them both through the lens of their eternal goodness and through the lens of Jesus' explanation uh, as we explore, um, well, as we explore this series of questions and answers that are meant to solidify in our hearts and minds a a full understanding of what it's meant uh, to live uh, with you and to follow in your footsteps. Well, 
Give us minds to understand and soft hearts that are willing to submit and a will to obey. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Arthur Pink, in the unabridged version of the attributes of God, says, Nothing short of a full-orbed view of the divine perfections as revealed in Holy Writ should satisfy us. And everybody goes, mm, yeah, I totally get what you mean. <laughs> right? I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm firing over all of our heads here by way of introduction on purpose, okay? I'm going to read it again. Nothing short of a full-orbed view of the divine perfections as revealed in Holy Writ should satisfy us. Nothing short of a full-orbed view of the divine perfections, which you might say the attributes and characteristics of God as revealed in Scripture should satisfy us. Now, ooh, excuse me, I'm sorry. With all of the commands, that is the ten, the way a New Covenant Christian is to view them um, is as a, a wise guide to live God's way in God's world. Right? God made us and he made this world. And he did so with full foreknowledge of the pending fall of man and the introduction of sin into his creation. And so therefore, God knows how best humankind will flourish in his world. And he's given to us his law. It's a wise guide, a wise guide to live God's way in God's world. So we strive to obey them not as a means of earning God's favor, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, but merely as a response to God's generous mercy and grace. Now that said, every restriction, as in thou shalt not, every restriction has a blessing associated with it. Or, to put it plainly, each command has a positive side and a negative side. This is why the Westminster Catechism asks of each command, what does the fourth command forbid? And then, what does the fourth command require? There is a restriction, but also a positive, if you will, a, a request, a positive and a negative. We should not, therefore, explore them without considering both sides of the coin with each. Thus, the opening quote from A.W. Pink. Nothing short of a full-orbed view of the divine perfections as revealed in Holy Writ should satisfy us. Everybody with me? Tonight's question and answer is simply question number 11. What does God require in the 6th, 7th, and 8th commands? Summarized this way, 6, that we do not hurt or hate or be hostile to our neighbor but be patient and peaceful, pursuing even our enemies with love. Seventh, that we abstain from sexual immorality and live purely and faithfully, whether in marriage or in single life, avoiding all impure actions, looks, words, thoughts, or desires, 
and whatever might lead to them. Eighth, that we might, excuse me, that we do not take without permission that which belongs to someone else, nor withhold any good from someone we might benefit. And so if you listen to that um, answer from the New City Catechism, you might get, you might hear the inference of the positive and the negative, what is forbidden and what is required. So uh, keep that in mind as we explore the three commands. Three points, three phrases. Number one, if you're taking notes, we'll summarize the first under the phrase, love your neighbor, right? Or you should not murder. You shall not or thou shalt not murder. It's more than the restriction of murder. It is the requirement of love. What is forbidden? Well, the unjust destruction of a life. That's really the critical phrasing. The unjust destruction of a life in any form at any point. There are no exceptions, not even in times of war, because in just war or in the execution of a justice system, it's not murder. God makes plenty of provision for just war theory and insists that certain crimes require the life of the perpetrator. The Mosaic Law orders the death penalty for crimes such as cursing one's parents, Sabbath breaking, and homosexuality. These are not murder. And what is forbidden is the unjust destruction of a life. In fact, Leviticus chapter 20 prescribes 15 different non-murder instances where the death penalty was to be applied in ancient Israel. And the clearest prescription for murder earning the death penalty is from Numbers chapter 35, verse 34, verses 30 to 34, which simply states, you take a life, you pay for that life with your life. So what is forbidden is the unjust destruction of a life. Uh, capital punishment um, in various forms when it is rightly prescribed is not forbidden. Murder is forbidden. Unjust destruction. Now the next question naturally comes and is hotly debated in our culture. Who or what determines when a life is unjustly destroyed? Right? You say the prescription or the the phrasing, the standard, is unjust destruction. Well, what authority says this is just destruction and this is unjust destruction? This is murder and this is simply uh, the application of a justice system or the effects of a just war. To which the only right response is... The God who made life is the only one who has the right to determine when any life ends. The, the Christian must have this, if you will, answer uh, holstered. The God who gave life is the only one who has the right to determine when any life ends. Genesis 9, 6 roots this 
not in mankind, but in creation. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, because God made man in his own image. And so the Torah, um, the Torah makes the destruction of a life, the unjust destruction of a life, akin to the assault on the image of God in creation. This is why uh, suicide is forbidden, euthanasia is forbidden, abortion is forbidden. The Christian simply cannot advocate for these things while also maintaining fidelity to the word of God as the absolute and final authority. And if the word of God is not the absolute and final authority, we are no longer dealing in the realm of orthodox Christianity. Therefore, every Christian should celebrate the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Every Christian should celebrate the ruling in Alabama this past week that requires embryos formed in a lab as part of in vitro fertilization be treated as life, not as a clump of cells. This isn't a question that, that should be considered up for debate. It is not nuanced. God is the author of life. And only God can prescribe when it should cease. We can find that again reinforced in Deuteronomy 32, 39, and in 1 Samuel 2, 6. Now you fast forward from this simple requirement that to take a life unjustly is forbidden. You fast forward that to Jesus and what we just read in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is the reflection of God in all wisdom. He is God himself, but his purpose in the incarnation uh, is to reflect. He is the, the image of God, so says, I believe, Paul in Colossians. He is God incarnate, but he is also the image of God. It's important for us to distinguish those things. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He didn't say, I am the Father. He claimed divinity, but he did so in very specific ways so as uh, that we are left with no other option but to come to this triune three persons in the one God language. Now, that said, as the reflection of God in all wisdom, he comes to shine light on God's law. You've heard it said, you shall not murder, but, but let me illuminate the law for you. Right? It moves beyond the physical and into the heart. The heart was to be the place where the law was to reside, as the psalmist said, I've hidden your word in my heart. And it is the law, or excuse me, and it is in the heart where the law is to be most dutifully observed. Does that track? to be hidden in the heart and most dutifully observed in the heart. And Jesus says the physical keeping of the law is subservient to the internal keeping of the law. Therefore, the obvious prohibition against unjust destruction is plain on the outside of man, but 
to truly worship God in spirit and in truth, we will obey his commands in spirit, meaning in our spirit, not merely in the physical domain. This is the, this is the issue raised in Malachi. You are keeping the law practically, tangibly, physically, but you're not keeping it in your heart. There's no sincerity. There's no repentance. Joel, too, rend your heart, not your garments. Right? The law is kept most dutifully in the heart. The keeping of the law with the hand is the excess, the overflow of the keeping of the law in the heart. God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This is essentially, we go back to this past Sunday morning's sermon and we preach it all over again. So this is what is forbidden. The hatred in the heart and of course the violence of unjust destruction by the hand. Conversely, what is required, right? Forbidden and required full-orbed view. What is required is that the Christian promotes life on all fronts. We champion life. It's the, it's the reason why uh, even something like a silly superhero movie can be worthwhile entertainment. Because often you find uh, this this ever decreasingly so in entertainment, but nonetheless, often you find what is upheld. The bad guys always have no issue with destroying innocent life. And the good guys are always sacrificially concerned with preserving even just one life. Right? I mean, if you play it out, you can go, you know, Marvel... Superheroes versus villains, right? Thanos and his methods. Star Wars, the dark side and the light side. They're blowing up planet Alderaan, right? You have this basic worldview that's upheld again and again and again. So the Christian finds themselves always cheering, you know, for the good guys because inherent to being a good guy is promoting and protecting, championing, life. All lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others, says Vincent in the, the broad explanation I've quoted multiple times in this series. What else is required? The defense of the defenseless, including ourselves and others. Jesus even said, go sell your coat and buy a sword. To do what? to defend life. Well, beyond promoting life on all fronts and doing everything lawful to preserve your own life and the life of others, defending the defenseless, there's also the taking care of your own bodies with moderation unto longevity and good health. We find this in Ephesians 5, 29. 1 Timothy 5.23, Ecclesiastes 5.12. There's not time to read. Uh, my notes tonight are, are just riddled with cross-references. We couldn't possibly read them all together. But even that, even the, you know, the scripture says, you know, bodily exercise profiteth in the, 
King James, profiteth little. Bodily exercise profits little. But it doesn't profit none. You know? If you're going to err to one side or the other, exercise your spirit more than your physical form, but it's not that it's completely useless. My Bible college had a, a, a little gym on it, and it was called the Prophet's Little Gym. <laughs> Such a cliche Bible college thing to do, but... Fifthly on this, we promote even... Uh, even the pursuit of patience, peaceableness, cheerfulness, and laughter unto good health. You guys have probably heard the story. I was, I don't know, maybe seven. I was sitting in like on the third row, like Connor right there, not kind of halfway paying attention. Not that you're halfway paying attention. I was halfway paying attention. And suddenly my voice came booming from the platform. Stephen, what did I just say? I got nothing. You know what I mean? Somehow out of thin air I pulled, a merry heart does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. Proverbs 17, 22. The pastor had just read it. Called me up front and gave me a dollar. And I've remembered that scripture ever since. But even that, consider the words carefully. A merry heart does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. To champion life, what is required is to even pursue a life of peaceableness. You might even say there's a, there's a, there's a, a subtle violation of the championship of life if we were to live on such a pace and with such a stress level that our lives are cut short, to live on such a diet or exercise regime that our lives are cut short, there is a subtle violation of this principle. Of course, the Lord knows and appoints our days, but nonetheless, the scriptures are true. Well, and then finally, you know, you, we are to love even our enemies, right? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? That's easy. But to love your enemies, to not even hate your enemies, to not even hate the persecutors. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Right? And so this is the... This is the simple command blown out to its fullest... Not fully. We could talk for another 30 minutes. But this is the simple command blown out, right? It's more than just don't strike your neighbor unto his death. It's more than that. It's promoting life. It's promoting health. It's promoting long life. It's, it's recoiling at any notions that the, the elderly population is a, is a strain on our health care system. In fact, everywhere that you find a, an atheistic, socialistic imposition on a society, you inevitably find the end result 
these old sick people are a strain on the system. And the system is paramount. Therefore, the old sick people should just be done away with. Always from an atheistic worldview, never from a Christian worldview. So love your neighbor. Second command, number two, second phrase, walk in purity. Same idea, right? The command says you shall not commit adultery. That's what's forbidden. Adultery in all of its forms. But it's more than that. It's walking in purity. So again, two sides of the coin. What's forbidden? Again, adultery in all of its forms. There is the obvious and the less obvious. The obvious is... Married men and women are to reserve their affection and intimacy with their singular husband or wife. You, uh, who are older than, you know, 20, uh, might remember the Ashley Madison scandal after a data breach in 2015. According to certain research, at least 400 pastors, elders, and deacons were among the men exposed as either pursuing or attempting an extramarital affair. An absolute disgrace to the name of our Savior and violation of the trust our churches placed in these men. The most obvious thing that is forbidden is the overt breach of marital faithfulness to your spouse. The less obvious, though, would be phrased this way by, again, Thomas Vincent, all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. All unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. And here again we come to the words of Jesus. You have heard it said, but I say merely looking with lustful intent. He has already committed adultery with her in his heart where the law is most dutifully observed. Martin Lloyd-Jones says he is guilty. This is the man who has lusted. He is guilty. He has coveted. He has desired. You see, as our Lord comes to interpret the law, he shows that an evil desire is as damnable as a deed. A thought and an imagination are as reprehensible in the sight of God as the act committed. Unquote. Yeah. Well, that's what's forbidden. The act of adultery, but then in the unseen recesses of the heart and in the imagination, are any and all unchaste thoughts, words, and deeds. What is required then? We are compelled to seek the welfare of our fellow man in the preservation of their purity and chastity as much as our own. Promote the purity of your brother and your sister. In fact, I, I don't, this isn't in my notes, but there's a point um, in one of Paul's letters where he speaks to young men in the church and he reminds them to treat other 
important to treat young women in the church as your sister in Christ first. She may one day be your wife, but today she's your sister in Christ. And tomorrow she might be someone else's wife. So how dare you, right? She's your sister in the Lord. You are charged, as I often tell my sons, you are charged to use your strength, your natural ability to dominate, to protect your sisters. So young men, how dare we treat our sisters so scornfully as to lust after them? They might be your bride one day, and they might be someone else's bride one day. How dare we? You understand? When we see it this way, there is a particular positive motivation to honor her. If we merely see it as the forbidding, no, resist what God put in you, what is natural and good in its confines, resist, resist, resist. No, there's a positive side to this. That might be your bride someday. You want your other brothers to treat her as though she might be your bride someday in their minds. And you should treat all of these as though they might be someone else's bride someday in your minds. We are brother and sister. Protect, honor, right? Now that's, there's a positive good. There's a positive motivation. We are compelled to seek the welfare of our fellow man in the preservation of their purity and chastity as much as our own. And this isn't blame shifting either. This isn't like, oh, women, I can't, I can't wear anything or else guys will say, oh, you're making me stumble. There's that whole shtick. This isn't about blame shifting. This is about seeking to honor and preserve and protect one another because we love each other as brother and sister in the Lord. And I'll tell you what, in our hypersexualized uh, culture, for Christians, for Christians to treat one another this way would be a remarkable witness to the watching world. This is the will of God, Paul writes. This is a famous phrase. I like to use it all the time. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I like to pull this completely out of context and just say, hey, listen, relax, all right? Should I go to this school or should I pursue this thing? Or Look, the will of God is simple. He wrote it down for you. It's your sanctification, right? The rest will work itself out, right? You endeavor to be made more in the image of your Savior by grace. But... But, but the verse does continue. This is the will of God, your sanctification, colon, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter because... The Lord is an avenger in all these things. That's a scary thought. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. Dear brother, let's have a little bit of fear of God in our hearts, right? 
the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, by the way. Now, given that the Holy Spirit has directly tied our sanctification to this matter of purity, listen, we should not be at all surprised that the devil has so consistently used this temptation to bring down the man or woman of God. And to degrade the flourishing of society by promiscuity. History teaches us that essentially at the apex of every world civilization is the breakdown of the marriage and the family unit. And it always accompanies homosexuality, gender confusion, and promiscuity. Always. This is to recognize that in sexual sin, there are no violations without someone else being wronged which is to say there are no victimless crimes in sexual sin. As much as a lustful thought is a violation of your own conscience, it's a violation of the individual being lusted over as well. To seek the welfare of others in this matter is also to promote biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. And by extension, seeking to resist all efforts that undermine them. So what is, what is promoted or what is required, seek the welfare of our fellow man, but also seek to promote biblical manhood and biblical womanhood and resist efforts that seek to undermine biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. The design of man and woman, each with strengths and weaknesses, is such a wise and, and divine design that we may only see the full value of it once a culture has fully rejected it and it implodes on itself. Then, as we look at this crumbling artifice of what was once a thriving society, we will stop and acknowledge the wisdom of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood lived out only by then. It's too late. So wise and has so, like an octopus, has so many tentacles reaching out into the entire structure of society and life and generational impacts. It's impossible to enumerate them in 10 or 15 minutes together on the subject. Needless to say, we allow the undermining of biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, right and good gender roles to our own demise. So what is required of the Christian is to resist that which undermines these things. We preserve these things. That's a list of phrases. I'm going to hit them quickly. If you want to write them or get them, get, just get my notes. We preserve these things by watchfulness, diligence, temperance, abstinence, 
fear of God, faith in Jesus, by the application of commands to prayer and confession, by the help of the Spirit, by accountability, and, quote, when no other means will avail to quench burning desires, marriage is to be made use of, and that must be in the Lord. This is a reference to 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says, just get married, you know? This is one of the reasons why marriage is so delayed in our young culture is because they are indulging their burning desire. Marriage is thus delayed. Children are thus delayed. Familyhood is thus delayed. And we are left with oftentimes the, the, the best childbearing years are forfeited to promiscuity and then childbearing years are limited to the last final and few such that for the first time in American history, we are not replacing ourselves generationally. And so when a, when a population stops replacing itself through childbirth and through, the, through a large families, that has a, a long-term effect, but also it cannot be course-corrected quickly. And so you look at a place like Japan, and Japan's going to like cease to exist in a generation because oh, it's South Korea. Japan's in bad shape too, but South Korea is about, it's like one generation away from just not existing. No one's having kids. And so you you all these like random effects of this and you like back it up, just back it up, back it up, back it up, back it up. Marry the wife of your youth. You know, like the wisdom of the Bible. Just get married. Get married and have lots of babies. Raise them to love Jesus. You know, that's like the best advice anybody can give young people. But again, you, you, you boot this off to the side. You, you delay it and indulge burning desires. And it has all of these negative effects, whereas if it's simply embraced, it's like all of these negative effects are easily avoided. Just the simple wisdom of the Bible. 2.5, that's the number, friends. In order for a population to replace itself generationally, you need 2.5 children per union. So if you stopped at two, shame on you. There's a lot of reasons, okay, I'm, I'm kidding. A lot of reasons why people want to have children, they can't, they wanted to have five and they could only have two. I'm really kidding. Uh, but thank you, Barths, for helping correct the curve, <laughs> right? The Lord has given us an outlet for the desire for one another, man and woman. It was born into us by creation. He's given us an outlet. And here's the list holy matrimony that's it okay holy matrimony so phrase two walk in purity command three phrase three succeed with integrity succeed with integrity now what is forbidden you shall not steal We'll do this rather quickly. I spent the time on the first few. Uh, I felt they were more devotionally applicable, but there is practical Christian wisdom here. So let's run through it. What is forbidden? Well, this means uh, Christians cannot play fast and loose with the tax code, under the table earnings, or critically, this one is applicable, gray area business practices. Let's be above board in everything that we do. Uh, just because we can doesn't mean we should, right? Let's follow the letter. 
Um, secondly, Christians cannot rob God of his offerings. So we can't play fast and loose with you know, the legal stuff. We also can't rob God of his offerings. Now, notice I didn't say tithes, uh, because a 10% tithe is not a biblical, like, not, it's not a biblical idea for the New Covenant Church. That's a good benchmark. Um, it's a biblical benchmark. But really, if you want to get down to it, the nation of Israel, they gave away more like 25 to 35% of their earnings every year. It was a 10% tithe, but then there were all these other offerings that were regularly given. And when you add them all up, it's like a third. But it's also, it's also part of the tax code for the nation as well. So it's a little bit mixed. That said, the new covenant principle for giving is simply generosity. It's not 10%. 10% is a good idea for a benchmark, but not as a checkmark. Um, the, the, the phrasing in the new, the new Covenant is just to give cheerfully. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. And, and one of the reasons why we don't pass the plate anymore is because no one should give out of compulsion. In fact, again, if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it says just give cheerfully. Don't give because you feel compelled to give or you are being persuaded to give. Don't. Like, don't. He's got a the cattle on a thousand hills. Don't, okay? Um, but do give generously. Um, give quietly, and you do. That there was some fear uh, around the time of COVID when we stopped passing a plate. There was some fear that contributions would be reduced. And I, in my heart and out loud, I said to our leaders and anyone who asked, if our contributions dip because we stopped passing a plate, people are giving for the wrong reason, and they shouldn't. Do not give under compulsion. And the only thing that's happened ever since we stopped passing a plate is your contributions have increased <laughs> year over year. Fancy that, right? Why? Well, because you give quietly as an act of worship with a glad heart. Praise the Lord, you know? So that's easy. We're forbidden from theft in all forms regarding all parties. So theft in our business practices and certainly theft from the Lord. That's what's forbidden. What is required? Well, these are phrased in the negative, but it's a requirement. What is promoted is resisting the human propensity for greed. Resisting the human propensity for greed. Resisting attack on private ownership. Now, did you know that the Puritans tried communal living for a while so full christian context full bible full pastors we're here in the new world as a christian community and they tried communal living where everyone just shared everything and everyone worked and everyone ate and you know what happened people were lazy some people worked hard some people didn't work enough and it caused conflict and so there's puritan literature that says we tried this it don't work you know what people need? Incentive. <laughs> crazy. It's crazy. And of course, then you look at modern day what's happening in places like, you know, Sweden, and they're trying all these like communal living ideas, and it always spirals. You have lazy and you have ambitious, and it causes conflict. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, resist attacks on private ownership and then seek to preserve the wealth of your neighbor. Yeah. So Proverbs 31, she considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hand. She plants a vineyard. That's private ownership. Proverbs 10, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Don't be greedy. 
do be hardworking, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 34, or 10, 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Seek to preserve the wealth of your neighbor, both by not stealing from him and also by promoting that which protects him. Did you know that the Pentagon, ever since they started having independent audits, has never passed an audit? They keep coming up with billions and billions, and they go, we don't know where that went. Not once. They cannot account for $6.5 trillion in taxpayer funds. Recently, Army retirees are being presented with bills to pay for lost gear that they were commanded to leave in Afghanistan in the fretful and hurried departure. There's no room for your extra gear. Just get in the chopper. We're taken off. And then they get back. They put in their retirement paperwork, and they're presented with a bill for the gear their commanders told them to leave. And you go, well, that's wrong. Yup. The federal government gave $5.4 billion in fraudulent COVID relief funds to scammers. It's being dubbed the biggest fraud in a generation and, quote, the great grift. Some estimates actually take that from $5.4 billion to $123 billion in wasted or fraudulent COVID expenditures. Now, why do I mention this here at the closing of a, a sermon? Here's the point. It is a Christian duty to vote for and promote policies and politicians that would resist and refuse to support laws and procedures that mishandle taxpayer funds. You should not steal. And you should promote and vote for policies and politicians that will champion not stealing from your neighbor via wasted taxpayer funds. It's not complicated. In fact, I'll just say it outright. It is not a complicated issue. You cannot reconcile Christian belief metrics and Orthodox Christianity with a Democratic Party ticket. You can't do it. You can try, but you can't. I'm not saying Republicans are more noble, but the party ticket and the platform and the policies are more in line with biblical biblical commands for how the Christian is to live. It's really straightforward. If we're going to promote that which was did not steal from our neighbor, we're going to promote politicians that at least in part work to that end. Beyond that, we are to give unto the care of the poor and the needy. Leviticus 25, if your brother becomes poor and can't maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a traveler. He should live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. Continuing to the promotion of the poor and the needy, Galatians 6, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith. Our first obligation is to our Christian brothers and sisters, but everyone. James 2, if your brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? James 1, 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Which doesn't mean go go see them. 
It means visit them in their affliction, which is to, in essence, sit down in the dirt with them. That's the idea. Like you would get dirty with them. Their concerns become your concerns. And finally, in Romans 13, Paul says, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Well, what we take away from this is twofold, and we're over time, so we'll wrap it here. First, it's not enough to merely restrict the evil that is forbidden. To obey the command is to pursue the good of each restriction. Then and only then do we really appreciate the value of the law as Jesus returns us to it. John chapter 3, verse 36. Resist evil and pursue good in each area of the command. The second thing we're left with is to recognize our status as members of God's community. Our destination in heaven will be governed by these laws. We don't have any part in the indulgence of the world around us. We are altogether different, and our ultimate destination is altogether different. Blessed are those who wash their robes. This is at the end of our Bible. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and, look for tonight's teaching, the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. We are, we, are, we are not supposed to be like our sinful brothers and sisters, you know, or our sinful fellow Americans. Our destination is altogether different. We are marked for a different eternity. Our lives ought to be marked as uniquely different. A person who calls himself a Christian, Calvin says, and makes no effort to live the sanctified life has no right to the name. A good word. Well, these are big and heavy things, and uh, five minutes over time. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us and your word. Thank you for the eternal wisdom that you have granted to us in it. Thank you for the time to carefully consider it. May you watch over us and keep us for Christ's sake and for the sake of the gospel. We pray all these things. Amen.